Hello, you're listening to the 10 by 9 podcast. I'm Paul Dorn, and in 2011, Patrick Otuma and I started 10 by 9 at the Black Box in Belfast, and we're still there every month. If you've never been, it's a live event where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life on a chosen theme, and we love it. There are three stories in this podcast for you, recorded on January the 22nd on The Kindness of Strangers. First up, Fergal McGookin, and there might be the odd little F-bomb in there, plus a little knowledge of the geography of Ireland might help. Apologies for the format of this story. It's uh, Paul Dorn said to me it's not our usual format, but it made him laugh. So, so it passed muster. But uh, it's kind of a collection of memories rather than one single story, but on a single theme. And it's called uh, The Kindness of Strangers, A Hitchhiker's Guide. Allow me to peer back in time through my rose-tinted spectacles. You know, the ones that tell you that your school days were the best days of your life. The ones that tell you those childhood holidays in Donegal were akin to a week in a tropical paradise. And that swimming in the Atlantic Ocean with your, in your swim shorts with the wee belt buckle, you know, the fake one, um, was a pleasurable experience. And not at all ball freezing. What's more, the glasses conveniently omit the flashback of your crown jewels disappearing up a front bodily orifice you never knew you had. The glasses also invoke memories of simpler times, when routine kindness was still a thing, a societal norm even, a time when we had more sense of freedom and uh, abandonment, born out of a mix of innocence and naivety, and certainly in my case, not to mention the absence of any inkling of wit or common sense. It was a time, for example, when people trusted complete strangers Not always advisable, admittedly. Yes, this was the golden age of hitchhiking. This particular practice required a significant degree of trust and faith in the basic humanity and goodwill of your fellow man. Someday, you could spin that hitchhiking Russian roulette gun barrel and get the escaped psychopath in an Austin Allegro. Which nearly happened. Or or worse, the born-again Christian playing Willie McRae gospel classics on the cassette which did happen. I used to hitchhike a lot back in the day from my hometown, Cookstown, to virtually everywhere. I regularly hitched to and from Derry or Belfast or to Derry and from Derry to Belfast and back. I was at college in Derry, you see, while my girlfriend was in Belfast. Crap, public transport and a distinct lack of funds would prove to be no barrier to unrequited young love. I'd positioned myself outside Alton Galvin Hospital near the big traffic lights. I tried to make direct eye contact with the driver or front passenger of vehicles, looking for signs of weakness. (laughs) While giving my best puppy-eyed, sympathy-inducing facial expression. I'm sure I got a few lifts off the back of instinctive maternal reactions from some female passengers who quickly ordered their male partners to pull in and give that poor wee creator a lift. There were, of course, a host of unpalatable, unpleasant, or downright dangerous hitchhiking scenarios that could play out in these circumstances. Or there was the terminally boring guy who gave me a running commentary on how long his average daily commute was, how many miles the gallon he achieved, 
and how long it would take him to retire from his terminally boring desk job in accounts if he paid an extra £65.50 into his pension pot every month. He only had 16 years and 8 months left, apparently, before he could retire a whole 18 months early. Merciful Jesus! That'll show the bastards, eh? 18 months early. I think I made an excuse to exit at the Castle Dawson roundabout, if memory serves. I wasn't going anywhere near Castle Dawson, but who cares? I once got another lift at Alton Galvin, where the elderly driver didn't really seem to know his destination, but he assured me it was well up the road. <laughs> he must mean Dungiven, I assumed, at the very least. Uh, I had just fastened the seatbelt before beginning with the usual introductory pleasantries when he indicated and pulled off the main road at Drumahoe. <laughs> That's us now, young sir. We had literally driven about two miles. And worse still, I was now in dodgy territory, if you know what I mean. This was the 1980s. Many's an unwitting young Catholic had his ballocks knocked in around here, I'd been told. So the all-purpose Protestant fake identity was resurrected, and the ever-reliable alter ego Mervyn Matherson <laughs> managed to get another lift mercifully quickly. Mervyn made frequent appearances in those days at UDR checkpoints, or, or, or when you had to go to the Protestant Chinese takeaway in Cookstown's Old Town area on a Saturday night, because the Catholic Chinese on the Fair Hill was already closed. When someone passed me in Cookstown Main Street once and nodded, all right, Merv. <laughs> I thought, <laughs> maybe I'm taking this dual identity thing a bit too far. <laughs> then there was White Van Man, again at Alton McGelvin, who said he was going as far as Tombridge. That'll do, I thought, and he seemed like a decent sort. All good until he suggested pulling in at the Ponderosa Bar at the top of the Glen Sheehan Pass. A few knowing, knowing groans there. Uh, just, just to use the toilets and get some refreshments. He winked. My new companion was greeted knowingly by the bar staff. This should have been the first warning signal. I went to the loo and on my return, two pints had been ordered. Actually, just the one I thought, after all, he, he is driving. <laughs> a second round was subsequently summoned and the crack was mighty. It wasn't until a third pint had been downed and a fourth engaged that I heard the subtle warning signal in my head again. You're not getting back into that fucking van now. <laughs> As if sensing my discomfort, Van Man declared that this would be his last one. As he, he didn't wish to overdo it. <laughs> he then promptly ordered another. One for the road, chair, one for the road, he exclaimed. I excused myself to go to the toilet again, slipped out the back door and started hitching again. I think I got away before he would even think to check the toilets for me. But that wasn't the worst one. My worst hitchhiking experience, I have to combine it with camping, um, however, came about in Donegal. My partner and I, both young and virtually penniless at the time, decided to go on a camping trip to Downings in Donegal, where I had spent a number of idyllic childhood holidays. At least, that's what those glasses told me. Remember those? I assured my deeply sceptical partner that I was a dab hand at this camping malarkey. Having been in the Scouts, 
In reality, I'd been politely asked to leave the Scouts for persistent failure to follow basic rules or do anything remotely Scout-worthy. We got a lift from Cookstown to the border at Straban. From there, we bussed it to Letterkenny. On arrival, we realised that the bus service to Downings was not running, and we took our chances with the oil thumbs. Again, I reassured my partner that I was an oil hand at this carry-on. Remarkably, we got an incident-free lift and got there before sundown. It was the week after an early Easter, and all was eerily quiet, which I thought strange. The weather, which had been unseasonably glorious during Easter, was now looking distinctly bleak. In fact, there was a proper Atlantic storm brewing. So using all of my finely honed scouting craft, I pitched our tent in between two vacant caravans. It was then that we were approached by the caravan park owner, who was completely incredulous. Are you wise enough there? That wind will whip under them statics and blow your tent to kingdom come, hey? One of them caravans will blow over on top of you, you buck idiots. In the end, we camped in the poor guy's garden behind a dry stone wall to protect us from the howling 80 miles per hour gales and driving rain. It was horrendous, but we survived. Relieved but exhausted and, and traumatised, we cut our losses and left the next morning. The soaking wet gear was packed away and we ventured onto the empty, rain-swept road. More in hope than expectation, the rain was driving at us sideways and we were feeling decidedly sorry for ourselves. In truth, tempers were getting frayed. Just then, a Volkswagen estate pulled in and we reacted like he just saved us from imminent death. Well, it just saved me from imminent death, I can tell you that. Um, even though he could only take us to nearby Carrigart, we were ecstatic. He was a wee old farmer and you could tell because, well, he smelled like a wee old farmer. And there were several bales of hay in the back, making for unconventional seating arrangements. I didn't even care about the sheep droppings on the back seat and the floor. So eager was I, I didn't even take my rucksack off as I clambered into the back. Now, my rucksack, I should explain, had a metal frame with, uh, you know, the old sort with the two bars protruding out of the top of it. So when I went to exit the car, the two bars pierced the interior roof material and I got stuck. So my partner cleverly kept the farmer talking while I yanked the rucksack poles back out of the ceiling again, leaving two neat circular holes in their wake. Given the state of the car already, I figured he wouldn't even notice. It would appear that the kindness of strangers isn't always reciprocated by the hitchhiker, I'm ashamed to say. Our misery was complete when we were subsequently evicted from a pub for steaming the place up whilst drying out in front of the fire. My partner insisted on waiting another hour for the, for the only bus back to Letterkenny. Any time I've suggested camping since, never mind hitchhiking, I've been met with the same refrain. Camping? Are you serious? You do remember Donegal, don't you? Look, I don't even do travel lodge, never mind camping. And don't even start me on that hitchhiking carry-on. No amount of rose tint will ever alter that. The specs are good, but they're not that good. Thanks, Fergal. I have to say, I am totally with your wife on this one. The camping days are over. Okay, next up, here's Laura Kelly. It was December in Belfast. It was three degrees and there was a weather warning for snow. I was coming back from the gym on my lunch hour. Already well over my allocated one-hour lunch break, I was trying to work out how I could get back to my desk via the canteen without anyone noticing I was already late. Walking along the street, I passed a homeless man I would see regularly. Nothing unusual here, except 
He was lying flat on his back in the middle of the street and there was a lady on the phone beside him. I walked past with my head down and got to the junction. Have you ever been in that situation when you ashamedly try to ignore something or unsay it so that you don't have to get involved or say something because you're too preoccupied or in your own head? It was that. Human instinct kicked in. I couldn't leave it. I ran back to see what I could do to help. I instinctively took off my coat and hat to put around him while the lady, Michelle, was on the phone to emergency services. She was getting nowhere, so handed the phone to me. Now, having no degree of medical knowledge at all, I rattled through the basics. Yep, it's definitely a human. No, there's no blood or sign of injury. Yeah, he's a good caller. Yeah, there's a pulse and his chest is moving up and down, albeit rather slowly. Having seen the drama unfold, the hotel across the road sent over blankets. Some other people donated coats to try and protect his fragile limbs against the elements. The man I'd affectionately named Ed, he looked like an Ed. He was still out cold. However, he now looked like a spare bed at a house party had that many coats piled on him. <laughs> a guy around my age had arrived to help. I tried not to notice him, but I couldn't help it. He was beautiful. He asked me if I was okay and I tried to shoo him away. Mate, I'm trying to save someone's life here. Could you take your beautiful face away? It's really distracting, I thought to myself. Do you want my coat? He asked. You must be freezing. A noise escaped my mouth. It can only be described as a hyena mating with a seal. I didn't realize I was capable of a girly laugh. And who knew you could blush when it was this cold? He didn't wait for an answer and instantly put it around me. In the madness of making sure Ed was kept warm, I hadn't realised I was left wearing a t-shirt, a pair of jeans and a pair of sockless shoes in Belfast in December. I didn't care. But now a few other people had arrived. There was a student nurse who was checking his vitals every few minutes. He had just sat his exams and had been walking back to his halls when he saw the commotion. He looked delighted with himself as he diligently put into practice everything he had been learning in class. <laughs> Michelle, it turned out, was a colleague I spoke to regularly on the phone but had never met. There was also an older man from the nearby office who, having watched a few episodes of Casualty, kept coming over to tell us he had a defibrillator we could use if needed. <laughs> now, I'm no doctor, but Ed did not need a defibrillator. Emergency services told me as it wasn't in fact an emergency, it would be two and a half hours before a paramedic would come out as they were really very busy. I looked at the phone to make sure we hadn't accidentally rang phone a cab. <laughs> Sorry. Unable to leave him, I threw myself on the ground and sat beside him. I was going nowhere. I was now invested in Ed, and I was also planning my wedding to a beautiful coat guy. <laughs> Think of the story we would tell our children. Daddy saved mommy from hypothermia by mommy was saving lives, he'd tell the kids. Who, of course, would all have the middle name, Ed. <laughs> beautiful coat guy sat down beside me. He smelled the student nurse also took a seat, as did Michelle. In work, Michelle and I would have worked quite closely with each other, but had never met. At times, I would get frustrated at her, and at times, she would have been short with me. Michelle was excellent at her job, but not having met her, I thought she was cold, ruthless, and a teeny bit annoying. And now, in a series of unfortunate events, I was reminded that she was, in fact, a human with, heart and, with a heart and feelings as we worked together to try and make sure Ed was okay. We were all going nowhere until we knew Ed was taken care of. We chatted and exchanged stories of the services in Northern Ireland. The lack of provision for homeless people or those having to sleep rough. The lack of leadership. 
It felt like strangers helping strangers had more influence than those in the hill. After an hour of waiting, I nipped back to work, still wearing that coat, to see if there was a hot water bottle I could give Ed. I prayed they didn't whip out the defibrillator while I was away. When I returned without a hot water bottle, there was still no sign of an ambulance. We were completely helpless until I had a somewhat not-so-genius idea to contact the police. Albeit there was no crime, we were getting desperate. I texted a police officer friend who happened to be on duty and asked if there was anything he could do. Are you actually flirting with someone while a guy is lying passed out beneath your feet? <laughs> I didn't realise said police officer was watching everything on the city centre's CCTV. <laughs> police officer friend reluctantly agreed that beautiful coat guy was indeed beautiful. Police officer friend promised he'd try and send someone out in the next half hour. He advised that unless there was a needle beside Ed, we had no chance of getting an ambulance. They were stretched behind comprehension. My heart sank. Regularly checking his pulse, we all felt confident that he was okay. But in icy cold weather and with alcohol in his system, we knew what could happen. Besides, Ed needed to be okay. He was going to be the best man at my wedding, the beautiful coat guy. <laughs> After what felt like an age, Ed started to stir. We helped him to sit up against the wall while I ran into the local shop to get him a cup of tea with plenty of sugar. He was swearing profusely and wondering why so many people were pestering him. You would be too if you were having the nap of your life and people were constantly lifting your eyelids and trying to wake you up. <laughs> the police arrived at the same time as the paramedics. The paramedics took one look at Ed and drove off. The two police officers, however, sat down beside him and chatted treating him with complete humanity and promising to contact the welcome organisation to get the bus round to see him. They couldn't have been kinder. I said goodbye to my new friends and returned to the office after possibly the longest lunch break ever, wondering how I was going to explain this to my boss. My, po my phone pinged 15 minutes later. It was a notification from LinkedIn. Someone has recently looked at your profile. <laughs> it was beautiful coat guy. <laughs> who was actually called Paul. Paul. It wasn't the best name, but I can make it work. Sorry, Paul Doran. <laughs> I, was, I was excited for our new life together. I just needed to break the news to my boyfriend at home. <laughs> I'm sure he'd understand. Since our lunchtime adventure, Michelle and I have now become quite good friends and meet regularly for lunch and work. We're definitely a lot more patient with each other. I see Ed most days when I'm walking past his spot. I always say hello. More often than not, he raises his fist at me and tells me to fuck off. <laughs> Good old Ed, never change. And as for Paul, I bump into him most weeks, but once the haze of drama had worn off, he wasn't actually that beautiful. And I'm pretty sure he was gay. And I gave him back his coat. Thanks so much, Laura, the Buddha of Compassion. Now, if you want to hear more from Laura, go to podcast 84 for an amazing story about her and her dog, Bailey. And it's not what you expect. Okay, if you like what we do and would like to help us keep on doing it, we have a Patreon account where you can make a monthly or a one-off donation, which goes towards covering some of our overheads, such as the website 10x9.com, where you can find out all you ever want to know about 10 by 9 Also, follow us on social media, that is Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Now, to our third story on the kindness of strangers, and it's from Glenn Jordan. It is a truth universally acknowledged that three men walking down the middle of a darkened residential street in the early hours of the morning 
must be up to no good. Certainly, that's how the residents of this street saw it as they peered at their curtains and turned on porch lights as these strangers passed their home. How could we tell these frightened people that we were no threat? But it was true. Me and two of my closest friends were lost in a strange country, in a strange city, hunting desperately for a way back to our hotel and slowly reconciling ourselves to the possibility of having to spend the night outside on a sultry night in New Jersey overlooking the Hudson River and the magnificent skyline of Manhattan. But let me back up a few decades. In the late 1970s and early 80s, as I was approaching the end of my teens, while others were styling their big hair, buying acid wash jeans, listening to Duran Duran and getting sniffy about the police and even you too, I and my boyhood friend Andrew were locked in a room in his house, far enough away from his parents and siblings so as not to disturb them, and listening to Bill Monroe and the Beatles and Elvis and Hank and Chuck Berry wrestling with chords and lyrics in an era before Google made it all so easy. We were always behind the music fashion, honing our harmonies to sound like the Everleys and bombing badly in our stage appearances. But above all, the music of those years, the artist who defined us in those years is Bruce Springsteen. And with his songs and his lyrics, we have grown up. There is Bruce and there is everyone else. His words have the consolation of scripture for us. And through the years of our friendship, though we've had our share of disappointment and broken relationships, as well as our joys and successes, and although I earn my living as a theologian, we are as likely to quote Springsteen to one another as we are to speak the Bible. From the optimism and energy of Born to Run to the surprise of growing old on Western stars, Bruce Springsteen's songs have charted experience only a decade or so ahead of us before we arrive in the same place and time. Though I'd been listening to his music for many years at Andrew's place, I bought my first Springsteen album, a cassette tape of Darkness on the Edge of Town, on the 3rd of January, 1985. It was a record shop in a freezing cold Portadown where we stayed overnight because, uh, and the only place open in the aftermath of the New Year celebrations and the peace event in Belfast that we traveled to on the previous day from the south. Later that same year, on the 1st of June, Andrew and I made the 60 or 70 mile journey from Bray in County Wicklow to Slane in his 20 year old Morris Minor with holes in the floor. And it was a scorching hot day when we saw Springsteen play his first ever gig in Ireland. We paid 15 punts for the tickets. <laughs> and we found ourselves among 65,000 fans sprawling across the hill down to the river, confident that Springsteen's visit marked a step forward for a new Ireland emerging from the dark ages of Twink and Joe Dolan. <laughs> These days, almost everyone in their 50s in Ireland claims to have been there. But, but we definitely were. The very front row, in fact, pressed up against the stage. That was my first Springsteen gig. And since then, Andrew and I have traveled thousands of miles to see him live. And on that day in June 1985, just crossing the threshold of our 20s, we dared to look decades ahead 
and to promise ourselves that we too would see him together in New Jersey, his home state, before we hit our 40s. Well, years later, Andrew had turned 42, and I was just about to hit 40, and we saw him in Crystal Palace in 2003, and then in the RDS in Dublin in the same year. Two days later, Andrew phoned me from his home in Scotland and said, do you remember our promise? I said, of course. He said, well, for your birthday this year, I've bought us two tickets to see him in Giants Stadium in September. Bruce was doing a 10-night stand in East Rutherford, New Jersey, to celebrate the end of the Rising Tour. I booked us a hotel in a place called Weehawken, three nights for the price of two, right on the shore of the Hudson, from where we could walk a couple of hundred yards, pay $5, and take a ferry across the river to Midtown Manhattan. Two bluffers living the jet set life for a few days. By then we had tickets for two gigs and we were joined by another friend, Tim, from the States. I spoke to the hotel concierge to find out how to get to the stadium by public transport. We got there and joined thousands of tailgate parties in the parking lot and one in particular organized by a fan who we met on one of the dedicated websites, all of us with pseudonyms based on Springsteen lyrics. I remember that I was Max Lawman, after the maximum lawman who ran down Flamingo chasing the rat and the barefoot girl. And that false name was all I needed to be accepted by this gang, who handed me a burger and a margarita in a plastic pint glass. We entered the fabled giant stadium, walked onto the pitch itself, and I went and stood on the very spot where Ray Houghton had smacked the ball past Pagliuca in the Italian goal to launch seismic Irish celebrations in the USA World Cup in 1994. And when we took our seats with the tens of thousands of others, we joined a community of strangers focused on the stage where Bruce would play for more than three hours on this Saturday night special. But then it came to going back to our hotel. We bade the fondest of farewells to our new friends that we would never see again, and we hopped on board the bus that would take us to the street corner just by our hotel, only it didn't. In my idiocy, I told my close friends that I had spotted earlier in the day a set of stairs that ran down from the top of the bluff above the river right down to the banks of the Hudson from where we would only have to walk a mile or so to the hotel. Only I judged it wrong. It was near midnight. There were no more buses and certainly no stairs to be seen. And away, away in the distance, Merging with the lights of the city, we could see our hotel, thousands of feet below us and, it seemed, millions of miles away. So we did what we could and started walking high above the river, seemingly level with the tops of the sky-high buildings of New York, keeping the river on our left-hand side. But soon the road veered away from Manhattan and the hour tottered past midnight and we were lost walking down the middle of a darkened residential street, lost, secretly worried, and the euphoria of the gig already passed us in the rearview mirror. People came out and stared as we passed. 
anxiously watching, having been woken from sleep by footsteps in the deadly silence of the street. One man bravely walked out onto his driveway, checked his car doors, and then called to us, asking us what the hell we were doing and what we wanted. He was wearing night clothes and a dressing gown and that curiously American sense of invulnerability. I stepped from the middle of the road, still 20 yards between us, and I explained that we were lost from out of state and trying to find our hotel. We moved closer. I watched his hands, wondering if he had a weapon. That's not an American accent, he said. No, I said, we're from Ireland. What are you doing here then? <laughs> it was then that I mentioned the magic words. We came here for a Bruce gig. We stepped closer again. And by now, we four were standing together talking about Springsteen. He telling us about the times he had met him, fully understanding the peculiar drive that brings Bruce fans together in temporary community time and time again. Then he said, wait here. He ran back inside and came back out moments later wearing a coat and said, climb in. And we heard the clunk of car doors unlocking as he pointed the keys and we jumped in, me in the front seat. I'll take you to your hotel, he said. We drove for 20 minutes and he dropped us outside the front door of the hotel. I fumbled in my pocket and took out a $20 note to hand him in thanks and he pushed my hand away. I wouldn't hear of it, he said. It's enough for me to know you folks came to my state to see Bruce and that you had a great time even while getting lost. We stepped out of the car and we waved goodbye as he drove out onto the street and we never got his name. Thanks, Glenn. Proof that Springsteen fans, if proof were needed, are the best. And that's it from this podcast. If you're interested, Podrick has his own podcast. It's called Poetry Unbound, and it's amazing and available from the usual podcast places. So a big thank you to everyone who keeps Ten by Nine going, the wonderful people at The Black Box, all our wonderful live audiences, and of course, a big thank you to you for listening. But the biggest thank you this week goes to Fergal McGuckin for his hitchhiking hilarity, Laura Kelly, who wasn't quite the good Samaritan she wanted to be, and Glenn Jordan, who was lost after being blinded by the light. I'll be back with another podcast soon, but for now, bye-bye. <laughs>